Great, so we're going to turn to John 17. I'm so pleased we just sung that song, by the way, because I love that song. And ever since September, I've been like, is it, can we sing it yet? Because <laughs> um, you sort of have to wait. I don't know why we have to wait till Christmas. We should sing it more often. Um, we're going to turn to John 17. Let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to spend some time, as we do every week, looking at God's Word, seeking to understand um, what God is teaching us from His Word. But we are going to then, um, towards the end of our service, have communion together. We're going to share. We thought, actually, as we're all together, it would be great for us to be able to celebrate and to celebrate Jesus. And as part of that, I, I, I'm going to tell you this now so you've got a heads up. Um, if there's anything that people want to share or to say, then there'll be a little space for a few people to do that. You see, we've just come off the back of a prayer week. Um, Lots of us have been praying in all sorts of different ways at different times, different moments in the week. And it may be that this week God has been particularly pushing something, you know, pressing something into your heart that he's been saying to you particularly, that you think it'd be great just to share that with people at Globe Church. It may be there's not. Or it may be that just as we look at John 17 or from something that we've looked at over the last few weeks, this is our last time in John's gospel for a while. So just as a heads up, if if there's something in your heart you think, oh, I'd love to just share that, then there'll be a few minutes to do that as we gather around the Lord's table. It's good to listen to one, hear from one another and to teach and admonish one another um, as we share God's word. So all that to say, John 17, I hope you've got it um, in front of you now, either on your phone or in, in the Bible. And last week, we looked at this whole prayer, and I tried to give an overview of the whole prayer And we saw that there were these three big themes. There's the glory that Jesus, as he goes to die on a cross, he's taken up with this idea of glory. He's he's thinking about the glory of his Father and the the eternal glory that belongs to him. And and he's thinking about that glory. And then that glory moves on to his precious people. And we saw this last week, how much he loves his people. And that then overflows into the world. So we saw that as a kind of an overview of the, um, of the prayer. What I want to do this week, I think we um, did a lot on glory last week. So I think we'll, we'll tick that and say we've, we haven't done it. I mean, there's more to glory. But I want us to focus in on um, the, the last bit of the prayer, which is probably the bit we did least on last week. So we're going to pick up from verse 20. And I'm going to read verses 20 um, to 26. So here is Jesus praying. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one. As we are one, I in them and you in me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you've sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known, 
in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Do you have a favorite number? Do you have a favorite? If I ask you, how many people here would say, yes, I've definitely got a favorite number? Yeah, some people, it's interesting. I don't know what that tells you, just an interesting uh, fact. We're going to focus on one number today. And I reckon, I'm going to make a case that this should be your favorite number. And I'm reckoning, I'm, in fact, I'm willing to guess that this is no one's favorite number in this room. I might be wrong, but I reckon it isn't. You can probably guess what the number is we're going to talk about. One. The number one. Did anyone say, is anyone's favorite number number one? No, of course it isn't. That's a, one, I mean, it's like so unimaginative. What should I have my favorite number? One, yeah, that'll do. <laughs> that surely be a bit more imaginative than that. What I'm going to try and do this afternoon is to show you that one is a beautiful number. And that one is the number that was in Jesus' mind as he went to the cross. You probably spotted it as I read it. He, he mentions the number one a lot more times than any other number in his prayer. He says in verse 21 that all of them may be one. Then he says it again in verse 22, that they may be one as we are one. Verse 23, they may be brought to complete unity. Here is what Jesus, what is it that Jesus wants for his people? What is it that Jesus is ambitious for his people? He wants us to be one. It's as clear as a day. You just can't miss it. Jesus, as he goes to the cross he wasn't praying about our awesomeness. He wasn't praying about how successful we'd be. He wasn't praying about how impressive we'd be. He was praying that we'd be one. He was praying about how united we would be. And I think that that should make us think. I think it should challenge us and help us to think about how passionately we share that desire for oneness. So all we're going to do is we're going to think through number one. And we're going to ask three questions. Firstly, what sort of unity are we talking about? Secondly, how do you get that unity? And thirdly, why do you need that unity? This isn't difficult. That's where we're heading. What sort of unity... How do you get it, and why do you need it? And the, the answer to the first question is really very, very surprising. What sort of unity is Jesus praying for? You see, I think that in our world, the idea of being one is not a particularly abstract or negative idea. I think people like the idea of being one. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just be one? I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Wouldn't that be lovely if we could all just be one? Why can't we all be together? This is what the United Nations is all about. One. Let's be united. So this isn't alien to human thinking, the idea of being one. But the sort of unity Jesus has in mind is very alien to human thinking. 
You see, here it is. In verse 21, have a look at it again. That all of them may be one. What do we mean, Jesus? What, what do you mean by being one? That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. He actually says the same thing earlier in the prayer. In verse 11, where he says, um, protect them. At the end of verse 11, he says, so that they may be one as we are one. In other words, the type of unity that Jesus is talking about is not a human unity. It's not a human friendship. It's not a human agreement. It is a divine God thing. Father, Son, are one. So if you want to know what the unity is that Jesus is talking about, he's talking about the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. Wow. Now the trouble is, that gets a bit more tricky. Because I sort of understand friendships. Sort of. You know, I've had friends. Lost a few along the way. You know, you... We get kind of having nice times with one another and those moments when we all feel nice, we feel united with one another. And so we can sort of understand a horizontal unity. But God is beyond us and above us. But Jesus says, if we're going to think about unity rightly, we've got to start with him. It is a theological issue. Unity is theological. Okay, so what do we discover about the unity of the Father and the Son? What sort of unity are we talking about? Well, that's what's been revealed all the way through John's Gospel, right? Over and over again, Jesus has been telling us that he is the Son of the Father. He says, I've come from the Father. I'm sent by the Father. I speak the words of the Father. I do the works of the Father. He says, this is my unity with my Father. I do his work. I speak his words. And so if you want to know what this unity is, you could say this unity between the Father and the Son, certainly it's a unity of love. They love one another. The Father and the Son love one another. Now, if at this point you're feeling a little bit lost, um, let me just be absolutely clear. Yes, we're talking about the Trinity. Okay? Yes, we're talking about God being Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, if you want to know what God is like, you have to picture him as the God of Father, Son, Spirit, love. United in love. You see, what we mustn't do is imagine that God is some solitary figure sitting in space, kind of floating there with not much to do and no one to talk to. And a bit lonely, really. I want you to understand this. God has never been lonely. God has never been lonely. Most of us sitting in this room have experienced moments of aloneness, right? Most of us have experienced moments of feeling lonely, of feeling cut off. 
God has never experienced that in eternity because the Father and the Son have always had each other. Love. And so it is a unity that removes any aloneness. A unity. But it isn't just love, right? It isn't just that the Father and the Son sit there going, Oh, I love you. Oh, you're awesome. I've thought of something else I really love about you, Father. No, this is a productive love. This is a love that does stuff. This is a love that is generative. You see, this unity that we're talking about, this unity of love, is also a unity of purpose. They share a common purpose. That's the sort of unity that Jesus is talking about. Just as we are one, Father, we love one another and we share the same purpose, Jesus says. That's how I want them to be, Father. You see, the Father and the Son have always been united perfectly in their purpose to create the universe. The Father and the Son, it wasn't that they needed a world because they were lonely. It was that they overflowed a world because their love had purpose to it. It drove them to create this majestic world out of their mutual love and purpose with one another. And the Father, the Son and the Spirit, they're all there in Genesis chapter 1. The Spirit's hovering over the waters. The, the Son is the Word of God. That's what John tells us. Let there be light. And the Father is the energizing power that creates this universe. Unity in purpose. Love that overflows in purpose. And then when the world rejected God and turned its back on Him, the Father and the Son and the Spirit were united in their purpose to save this world. And so the Father sent the Son. And it wasn't like the Son was saying, oh. you know when you've been sent to do something you don't want to do? Sometimes I send my sons to do things. I'm sending you, son, to do this. And they look at me with a unity of purpose. And they say, of course, Father. This is what we do, Father. It tends to more often happen. It's like, oh, why can't you send one of the other ones? <laughs> I guess disadvantage that God had, he didn't have any others. <laughs> Jesus, it's you. But we mustn't ever picture that God in some way is having to twist the arm of the Son. The Son joyfully comes from the Father. And so all over the place in John's Gospel you get this language. Jesus saying, I'm doing my Father's work. I'm speaking my Father's words. I'm doing His purpose. And then in John chapter 10, um, Jesus says, as clearly as you can possibly imagine. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about this work. He's come to be the shepherd. And he says, I and the Father are one. 
I give them eternal life. My sheep listen to my voice. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given to them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So you want, to know what you, you want to know what unity is? Well, it's the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. A unity of love. A unity of purpose. A unity that overflows. It's a majestic unity. This is what makes God so beautiful. Can I say this to you? I, this is the key, I think to beginning to delight and enjoy God for who He is. Beginning to see that He's not some headmaster. Look, this stage here, right? This, this stage, this is a high stage. I thought about preaching from here. That's high. This is built for a headmaster. If I stood up here, you would feel like school children. This isn't designed for a friendly pastor who wants to be your mate. <laughs> this is designed for a head teacher who wants to be a figure of authority. And many of us, I think, portray God. We have a view of God that he stands on a headmaster's stage. That there's something authoritarian and harsh about him. And even if we wouldn't articulate it, there's still some nagging sense within us that that is what God is like. But Jesus reveals to us that God is love. That within God, there is this beautiful, mutual unity of love and a unity of purpose. Now, the interesting thing in the Old Testament is, before Jesus comes, you get little glimpses, but you never really see that. Not like this. But you do get hints. Let me just show you a couple of things from the Old Testament, just to, to kind of drive this point home. Because it's important we understand what this unity is we're talking about. See, back in Genesis, when God creates the world... There's a moment when God sees something that's not good in his creation. He sees a man, the man that he's created, and the man is on his own. The man is one. And God says, it's not good for the man to be one. You go, hang on a second. I thought one was the best number. What's happened to that? No, God says one is not good. So he says, I'm going to create a woman, and he creates a woman. Now how many are there? <laughs> very good it's because it's we're in a school okay it's, it's just happens to me automatically now there are two and you say okay well that's good then is it now there's two God says no 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 not done yet because what is God going to do with the two he's going to make them one and so God takes the man and the woman and it says the man and his the father uh, the man <laughs> says something. The man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one. You see, this is the unity that God is talking about. One, where two are made one. And they become one in love and they become one in purpose. And it is a reflection of the divine unity of God. You see, when the man and the woman become one, they don't stop being a man and a woman. 
They're still two, but they're now one. And so it is in the Trinity that the Father, Son, and Spirit, they don't stop being Father, Son, and Spirit, but they are one. Do you know, there's no other world religion that teaches anything like this. There are many religions that teach that there is one God. The kind of unit, unit, the one, solitary, on his own God. And there's plenty of religions that teach you there are loads of gods. But there is no other place that you see this profound mystery that the one and the many, three, are together. That's what makes God so beautiful. And he then reflects it in his creation. But marriage is only one little picture of that. Because that was always meant to overflow to his people. It was never meant to be that in order to experience this fulfillment, you have to be married. So the other place I just want to show you this oneness um, is in numbers. Um, Since we're talking about numbers. Uh, In in Numbers chapter 2, don't worry about turning to it particularly if you don't want to. Um, I think Numbers chapter 2 might be one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Um, numbers is when they're wandering around the desert, as Mike referred to earlier. And you get this random bit, right, where God says, this is how you're to set up your camp. Now, I don't know if you've ever been camping, but setting up your camp properly is Crucial to an enjoyable camping experience. This is how God says they're to set up the camp. He says, on the east, you're to have these three tribes, Issachar, Zebulun, and one other. Anyway, there we go. Um, And Judah, sorry. (laughs) They're all on the east. On the south, you then get another three tribes. Uh, Reuben, Simeon, and Gat. So you've got east, so we're going round the, round the compass, all right? So you've got east, you've got three tribes. Then you've got, um, on the south, you've got another three. But then before we get to the west, then it says, then the tent of meeting and the camp of the Levites will be set out in the middle of the camps. They'll be set out in the same order as they set up camp, each in its own place under their standard. So you put the tent of God's meeting, that the place where God dwells, in the middle. So you have east, west, then another three in the west, another three in the north. And you have the 12 tribes of Israel all around the one um, tent of meeting. And when God creates a nation, this is what he does. But the cool thing is that he doesn't say, oh, forget all your names, forget all your families, forget all of that stuff. Let's just call you all blob. Instead, he says, no, you're still this family. You, cl- you camp in your clan, in your family, in your tribe, because you maintain your distinctness, but you are part of the one unity, the one unity of love that is brought together all by God. I hope this makes sense. If you could fly a helicopter over the tribes of Israel, you'd see them... It, The very way they're set up tells you about their unity. One. And yet all still with their flags. You don't have to abandon being you in order to be a Christian. 
You don't have to stop being the distinctives that you are. You don't lose your ethnicity when you become a Christian. Oneness doesn't mean that all of our differences get smoothed out. Oneness means that we are united by all our differences, in all our differences, around the one God. And so we develop this oneness that is in the Trinity, a unity of love and a unity of purpose, where we begin to love one another. Where we begin to love one another deeply, like the Father loves the Son. You see, the Father doesn't love the Son because of what He can get out of Him. The Father doesn't love the Son because it makes Him feel good. The Father loves the Son because He loves Him. He loves Him because that is who He is. And do you know what? If I'm honest, often the sort of love that I exhibit is a love that wants stuff back. It's a love that loves the people who are useful. What? This person's quite good at, um, I don't know, playing the drums. Excellent. Really love them. And it's subtle, right? It's subtle, but we love people because of how useful they are to us rather than loving them in the way the Father loves the Son, in this constant, beautiful love and unity of purpose. So when Jesus says, I want you to be one, this is the oneness he's talking about. He's talking about the oneness that he's enjoyed for all eternity. It's a bit like he goes, it's a bit like Jesus thinking, I love being one with you, Father. It's like the best thing ever. And I really want my people to experience that as well. Because it's just so awesome. And so he prays it for them. So how do you get this oneness then? That if the oneness is that, a unity of purpose and a unity of love that we see in God, how do you get that? Well, have a look at verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Ah, oh, now that's interesting. This is not something that we can manufacture. This isn't something that we can produce ourselves. Let's try really hard to be one. Let's try and be kind to each other. No, Jesus says, in order for this sort of unity to exist, the only way that can possibly happen is if Jesus gives us the glory that the Father gave him. Man, I've got to be honest. The language in John's Gospel is just so profound. It just feels so deep. We thought loads last week about the glory story, about the Father giving glory to the Son before the creation of the world. But that glory is now given to us. What does that mean? 
We don't deserve glory, right? No, we don't. But that is why only Jesus can create this sort of unity among us. Remember earlier I said that God has never experienced aloneness. God has never been lonely. That's almost true. Except for one thing. There was a moment when Jesus experienced the most profound loneliness. There was a moment when Jesus, who's always been loved by the Father, he stepped into this world, he went to a cross, and as he died on a cross, he was alone. It's one of the other Gospels where they say, the crowd saying, now leave him alone. He's alone. And then he cries out that haunting cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus in that moment experienced loneliness, aloneness, abandonment from his father. He had never experienced that before. And you say, well, why was he doing that? He was doing that so he could give you glory. What is glory? Glory is the love of the father for the son. He was giving you glory. That is, he was taking you up into that eternal relationship of the Father and the Son, but the only way He could do it was to die for you. I know I bang on about this all the time, and if you come to Globe Church, you hear this in every sermon. I know it. And sometimes people say to me, why do you say this all the time? Because there's nothing more important in all the universe. But here's the deal. I deserve no glory. I deserve to be shut out away from that beautiful unity of God. I deserve aloneness forever. And yet Jesus came and he traded places with me so that I, he might take my aloneness, that I might taste his glory, that I might experience something of the glory of union with God. This is what Jesus came to do. When he says, I've given them glory, that's what he's talking about. That's what it cost him. Because he so desperately wants to unite you to the Father and to each other. So Jesus went to a cross to pay for our Unity, that we might be brought into that relationship with God and then that we might be brought to complete unity in one another. There's a hint here, isn't there, that Jesus knows this isn't going to be plain sailing. When he says, I pray that they'll be brought to complete unity, you get this sense he probably knows there's going to be some niggles along the way. There's going to be some hiccups in this unity thing. He knows that this is a lifetime project because we are still people who act selfishly, who act against unity. Sin always tends to division. Sin always breaks things apart. God puts things together, right? So Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall and then he had a big fall and all the king's horses and all the cooked men couldn't put Humpty together again because... 
Sin can't put things together again. When we're sinners, things remain broken and we mess things up. It's only God who can put things together. Humpty Dumpty's only hope is God. A broken, fractured, shattered, divided world, its only hope is that God would put it together. All the king's horses and all the king's men will do you no good. No matter how wise and beautiful and kind and friendly and wise and brilliant they are as politicians, they will never put you back together again. Only Jesus can bring you to complete unity. Only Jesus can bring us to complete unity. His project, right? His desire, his one purpose with the Father was not just to save you. It was to save us. If we get to heaven and we're all there and we're all saying, Jesus, thanks for saving me. And we're like, oh, who are you? What are you doing here? That's not what Jesus saved us for. Our unity. He died to save a people for himself. You know, I think probably when you think of, um, I'll get to that in a second. We've done the, what is, the, what is this unity? It's the unity of the Father and the Son. That's what he wants us to taste. That depth of unity. How do you get that unity? Only when Jesus gives you glory. You've got to be given glory. The glory that the Father gave to him. Only then can you taste that glory. And why do we need it? This is the rest of the verses. We need it because then the world will know that Jesus is for real. You see, the, the world is supposed to be able to look at the church and say, wow, there's something different about you. I really don't like Jesus. He's really, I don't know much about him, not that interested in him. But you guys, there is something about you guys. Which means that this unity that we're talking about, it will look like something. It will be visible. We've got to show the world what God has done in bringing us together. It's why when a church divides, it's like the most tragic, sad thing. Many of us, I guess, have probably been in situations where churches have done that. Because we're all fallen and we're broken and we sin and we stuff it up and we make a mess of things. And that damages the witness to the world. But when the church comes together and says, yes, we are together. And notice this is not just local churches. This is all Christians. Everyone who believes in Jesus. And often sometimes we can be so kind of like, yeah, but what about the Christians who don't, you know, who don't agree with me on this? Oh, come on. It's like, that's... Jesus is busy praying for our unity and we're going, yeah, but not them. There needs to be within us a spirit of generosity, a spirit of openness, a spirit of welcome, a spirit of love. And I could stand here and tell you, yeah, of course, this means that if you haven't been given glory by Jesus, then we can't be united, all right? So it's no good us pretending that this unity can exist with, you know, any old person who doesn't really believe that Jesus is who he said he is or whatever. No, of course we can't. If someone denies the basics of the gospel, if someone says Jesus didn't rise from the dead or Jesus didn't really die on a cross to pay for sin, 
Or if someone says the Bible isn't really the word of God. But of course we can't be united because the, this unity comes as Jesus gives us glory. But to all those who have been given glory by Jesus, we want to extend our welcome, right? Extend our love. Pray for them. doesn't mean we need to become like them. It doesn't mean that we all need to go to each other's churches. I love it. I've got two, um, there's two guys in Birmingham. Well, one of them's just moving. But two guys in Birmingham who are both pastors. And they're a great model of this. They stand up. I've heard them do it a couple of times. They stand up and they say, uh, one of them says, I really love this guy. I would never be a member of his church. <laughs> and then the other guy says, exactly the same. Because they've got a different style, a different way of doing things. And that's okay, right? Because there is a unity in love and a unity in purpose. And the great thing is that they are planting churches together and they're seeking to do stuff together and they're seeking to work together because they're united. And it becomes a witness to the world. And so, oh, Globe Church, let's be a church where we don't all have to be the same. Let's be a church where we celebrate our differences and we celebrate the way we do things differently. And then let's celebrate that there are other churches in London doing things differently to us. Let's celebrate that Jesus is being preached. Because the world needs to know. So why does this unity matter? Because the world needs to know. But also, have a look at verse 24. It isn't just that the world needs to know. We need this unity because we have a shared future. Look at verse 24. Father, I want those you've given me to be... <laughs> Here's Jesus, right? The night before he dies. I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus is leaving. And he says, Father, I'm leaving them, protect them, unite them, make them a witness to the world, but I want them to see my glory. Jesus wants you in heaven with him. He really does. He wants you to see his glory. He's longing for the day when you appear and you turn up in heaven and he says, now you can see my glory fully. He wants you to see his glory. I had those brief moments when I was a kid when I would tidy my room or I would tidy the kitchen when my mum and dad are out. Didn't do it often, just occasionally. But you know what it's like, right? When they get home and you're acting all cool, oh, yeah, 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 it's all right. You're just waiting, right? You're longing for the moment when they walk into the kitchen and they go, oh, wow. And the satisfaction because it's because you've done it out of love for them and you, you want them to, ex that, that joy of them experiencing. I, I wonder if that's a small picture. But Jesus longs for you to see his glory. And one day you'll see it and it won't be long. And you'll stand there and you'll see his glory face to face. And until that day, the last two sentences of this prayer tell you that Jesus is going to keep keeping you. Jesus says, I know you and they know that you've sent me. 
I've made them known to you and will, sorry, I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus will continue to make himself known to you. He will continue to be in you. He's going, but he will continue his work. He's going to send his spirit. His spirit will live in you. He will reveal himself to you. Here is how Jesus finishes this great prayer. Let's wrap all this up and land it. Hopefully. This is what Jesus cares about for us as a church. That means it's not appropriate for us to allow divisions to creep in among us. It's not appropriate for us to criticize and to grumble and to complain and to tear other people down. You take any sin you like and it will destroy lust. Where you begin to treat someone of the opposite sex as an an object rather than as a brother or sister. Perhaps they're married and it begins to break things apart. It's what it happens, right? Envy, breaking stuff apart. Anger, breaking things apart. And Jesus came, he died on a cross to pay for our sin and then he rose again and he prayed for us to be united. And so we've got to work, we've got to fight, we've got to ask him to give us that glory that the Father gave him that we may be one and that we might fight for that unity. And then it matters how we treat one another. We've talked a lot about race. We've talked a lot about diversity. But it's here again. It's on Jesus' heart. He cares about this stuff. He doesn't want us to be a uniform church. He wants us to be a united church. That's not the same thing. You don't all have to go and buy a check shirt in order to come to this church. Although I highly recommend it. You don't have to wear certain clothes. You don't have to adopt a certain attitude. And I fear that we make out that you do. And how do we welcome people who are different? Look for people who are different. Move towards people who are different. Celebrate people who are different. You know this stuff, right? I guess today I'm saying, Jesus, this matters so much to Jesus. It really matters to him. And the unity he wants us to have in those moments is not just a unity where we kind of tolerate one another or we put someone who's different on the stage so we're going to go, oh, look, look, they're different. Instead, it's it's the unity that the Father has for the Son. Love. A common purpose. That's what Jesus prayed for. So I'm going to take, um, we're going to take a moment to pray. And then we're going to have communion. And like I said, there's going to be a moment to to share anything people want to to say if anyone wants to. But let me just say this. We don't often do this before communion. But Jesus said, when you... Jesus said, when you come to offer an offering at the altar, if you have something against someone, or you know someone's got something against you, you should deal with that. You deal with it before you then come and offer your offering. Actually, communion is an appropriate time.
to go to someone perhaps who you have fallen out with, someone who you've stopped talking to, someone who, where you know there's a problem in your relationship, and actually to deal with it. This is real. You know, this is real. As Globe Church gets bigger, it becomes increasingly easy to sort of fall out with one another and no one notices. But you know, who's, you know who you're not in a right relationship with. We're going to eat the bread and drink the wine that remind us of the body and blood of Jesus. Jesus prayed for our unity. Perhaps this afternoon would be a really appropriate time to just say to someone after service, can I have a quick chat with you? Be honest. Pray for unity. I'm going to lead us in prayer. And, um, and then we're going to sing and prepare our hearts. Father, we praise you because you are the God um, who for all eternity has been Father, Son, and Spirit. United in perfect love. United in purpose. United in creating this world. United in redeeming this world. United with a depth of unity that's never been broken. An aloneness that you've never experienced. Father, many of us in this room feel profoundly alone. Um, and we pray, Father, please, that you'd help us to be a church family who love one another. Not in a superficial, once in a while type of way, but who have this depth of love, a, a supernatural love of one another a unity of purpose. Lord, please teach us. And we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.